Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast where we do things the Hemingway. Um, had a big day. I did a big online course uh, at a primary school. Um, today was the first one. We're doing a series of six of them. And um, had 35 kids show up, you know, or log in, I should say, as they're all, they're all attending from their homes via Google Meets. But um, really good turnout, 35 kids. 30, who would think that at a primary school, 35 kids would opt to take a lesson that they don't need to have about creative writing? Um, so it's really cool. Got some good little authors there and we're working on some books. Also had about, oh, excuse me, uh, yesterday we released a film clip we'd been working on, so an old high school buddy recorded the drums, you know, a cover of some drums for a song called Just a Phase by Incubus, it's a bit of a blast from the past, he sent that to my brother who has a recording studio in his home um, and said put the guitar on this, so my brother did the guitar and he also did the vocals. And then they sent it to me and said, chuck some bass on this. So I did the bass. And we all filmed ourselves doing our parts. And then it's been stitched together into a like a little video clip cover of this song. And that was just a fun thing. Like It's the closest we can get to playing music with each other at the moment because we're in stage four lockdown. But um, it turned out really good and had a lot of good feedback. Oh, excuse me. It's late. Anyway, I'll link you that in the uh, in today's discussion if anyone wants to see me slapping the bass. And I'm also wearing a cool hat, so it's worth watching. Now, anyway, we're here to talk about the penultimate chapter, the second last chapter, 44, of The Red and the Black. And then we'll read the final chapter. And despite all this yawning I'm doing, I am actually excited for this. Swim said the mummerfish, he said, these lines. Everything Matilda said was irritating. Her sorrow was real. Julian saw that and was only more irritated by it. Being there, once you reach this point, the relationship is done, never to be resurrected. Yeah, I've had that feeling where someone you get to the point with someone where you feel a bit trapped with them and then they just start to grind on you, you know. Um, it's not even always a relationship it can be like a bad housemate or someone that you just kind of locked in with and you know it's like that thing when they the way they chew makes makes your skin crawl and you're like end up yelling can you chew quietly <laughs> something like that um not that i've ever done that it's just a trope um what was i gonna say something oh yeah but their situation julian and matilda is a bit more complicated than that because he's well, he's due to be having his head chopped off any minute now. Plus, he's in love with his other woman, and he tried to shoot her, and it's it's a pretty complicated thing. Uh, and this says Swim, Father de Filier, on seeing Julian lost, believed it to be helpful to him and his ambitions if he sought to replace him in her, Matilda's affections. Yuck! <clears throat> Wake up. This line makes my heart hurt. Here we have fatherly love, and he said it again and again, cut to the heart. And here at the end, Julian sees even his hero Napoleon was a hypocrite. Napoleon at St. Helena, pure charlatanism, a proclamation for his son, the King of Rome. If such a man, 
even when misery ought be by rights to sharply recall him to his duty, lowers himself to charlatanism, what should we expect from the rest of the species? Stendhal has relented in this chapter to give us a pretty clear idea of what this book has been about, a searing critique of French society with a working class, Jesu, bourgeois, aristocratic, liberal, monarchist, Parisian, rural. Although the Jantons come off pretty well, and Fouque, may we all have a friend such as him, such as he, sorry, um, <laughs> took your sentence and made it grammatically worse. Acoustic Eel says, well, he is really losing it now, understandable since he's about to die, but still, the one part of his soliloquy that I could grasp was an anthill and a hunter's boot. There are some things that just can't, we can't understand, no matter how hard we try. Reminded me of a line from a stand-up special by Russell Brand, where he said, my cat doesn't know there's an internet. <laughs> Good line. Uh, nice that Julian got served wine in prison, though. Wish they still did that. Laura Weistich said there are some great parts at the end of this chapter. This summed up his talking to himself perfectly. Though I am talking to myself, and within an ace of death, I still play the hypocrite. Excuse me. I liked his comparison to the fly that never sees light. And <clears throat> when he admits this, that Madame de Renal is what makes me lonely and not the absence of a god who is just, good and omnipotent, devoid of malice and in no wise gre- gre- greedy of vengeance. What was the line that I, I marked this bit? I liked this bit. The jailer led in to recidivists just about to be sent back to the galleys. They were two sprightly villains, really remarkable for their cleverness, courage and nerve. If you slip me twenty francs, said one of them to Julian, I will tell you the story of my life in detail. It is delicious. But won't you lie to me, asked Julian. Not a bit of it, he answered, for my mate there, who is jealous of the twenty, would betray me if I told a lie. His story was abominable. It was a display of a courageous spirit, in which only one passion had survived, the passion for money. I liked that bit. All right. Let's finish this book, eh? Chapter uh, 45. Here we go. It goes like this. I don't want to play such a rotten trick on poor old Abe Chaz Bernard as to call upon him, he told Fouque. He would be unable to eat for the next three days, but do try to find me a Jansenist, some friend of Monsieur Pirard who will be impervious to intrigue. Fouque had impatiently waited for this opening. Julian now decorously discharged all duties that are due to public opinion in the provinces. Thanks to Monsieur Abe de Frillier, and in spite of this unfortunate choice of a confessor, in his cell Julian was under the protection of the congregation. If he had acted with a little more enterprise, he might even have contrived to escape. But the bad air of his cell was producing its effect. His mental powers were in decline. This made him all the happier when Madame de Renal did return. My first duty was towards you, she said, taking him in her arms. I have put Verrier's behind me. Julian had no petty pride with her. He told her all his weaknesses. She responded with all her powers of grace and charm. Immediately she had left the prison that evening, she summoned to her aunt's house the priest who had latched on to Julian as prey. Since his dearest wish was to gain credit amongst the young matrons of Bezicon High Society, Madame de Renal easily persuaded him to go and perform a novena 
at the Abbey of Brayley Hort. No words can convey the intensity and wildness of Julian's passion, but by the power of money and by using the misusing the prestige of her aunt, a lady well known to be of great piety and wealth, Madame de Renal contrived to visit him twice each day. At news of this, Matilda's jealousy reached fever pitch. Monsieur de Frilia had confessed that not even all his influence could brave convention to the extent of gaining permission for her to see her friend more than once a day. Matilda ordered that Madame de Renal be followed in order to know her, of her slightest movements. Monsieur de Frilia exhausted all the resources of a very adroit mind to persuade her that Julian was unworthy of her. In the midst of all these torments, she loved him only the more and presented him with a horrible scene almost every day. Julian wished with all his might to act honourably and to the end towards the poor young woman he had so strangely compromised. But his uncontrollable passion for Madame de Renal defeated him at every step. Then, when by reason of his weak arguments he was failing to persuade Matilda of the innocence of her rival's visit, he said to himself, by now the end of the drama must be very near. That is a sort of excuse for me if I cannot manage to dissimulate better. Mademoiselle de la Mole learned of Monsieur de Croisenois' death. Monsieur de Thaler, that exceedingly rich young man, had allowed himself to make disagreeable remarks on the subject of Matilda's disappearance. Monsieur de Croisenois had begged him to retract them. Monsieur de Thaler had then shown him some anonymous letters that he had been sent full of details assembled with such skill that it was impossible for the Marquise not to recognise the truth. Monsieur de Thaler allowed himself some pleasantries that were not subtle. Wild with rage and misery, Monsieur de Croisenoise demanded such heavy reparation that the millionaire preferred a duel. Stupidity won, and on the most amiable young men in Paris was dead, and one of the most amiable young men in Paris was dead before the age of twenty-four. This death made a strange and unhealthy impression on Julian's enfeebled mind. Uh, poor old Croisner, he said to Matilda. He really was very moderate and behaved like a true gentleman towards us. He might well have hated me for the rashness of your behaviour in Madame, your mother's salon, and he, pro and he probably longed to quarrel with me, the hatred scorn provokes in is usually ferocious. The death of Monsieur de Croisenois upset all Julian's plans for Matilda's future. He spent several days trying to persuade her that she should accept the hand of Monsieur de Luce. He is a shy sort of fellow, not at all a Jesuit, he argued, who will undoubtedly find his own place in the ranks. His ambitions are less brilliant but more persistent than those of poor Croisenois, and with no Decal's title in the family, he won't have any difficulty marrying the widow of Julian Sorel. And a widow, too, who has a contempt for grand passions, Matilda coldly commented, for she has lived long enough, after six months, to see her lover preferring another woman, a woman who is the cause of all their suffering. You are unjust. Madame de Renal visits will supply some striking phrases to the Paris, mon uh, Paris attorney in charge of my appeal for clemency. He will be able to paint the picture of a murderer being honoured by the victim's care. That should have its effect, and maybe one day you will see me becoming the subject of some melodrama, etc., etc. A burning jealousy with no chance of reparation, a persistent misery that was hopeless, for even supposing Julian was saved, how could she regain his heart? A feeling of shame and her despair at loving this unfaithful lover more than ever. 
had cast Mademoiselle de la Mole into a gloomy silence from which Monsieur de Frilliard's assiduous attentions could not, any more than Fugue's blunt frankness, draw her out. As to Julian, save in the moments usurped by Matilda's presence, he lived for his love and with almost no thought of what was to come. As a curious result of his passion, at its height and with no pretense at all, Madame de Renal came to share almost equally in his carefree moods and gentle gaiety. In the past, Julian said to her, when I could have been so extraordinarily happy during our walks in the woods at Vergy, furious ambition transported my soul to imaginary realms. Instead of me pressing this lovely arm, which you so near, which was so near to my lips, my heart, the future took me away from you. I was engaged with the innumerable struggles I would have to endure to amass a vast fortune. Now I would have died quite without knowing the nature of happiness had it not come to you visiting me in this prison. Two events occurred to trouble this peaceful existence. Julian's confessor, since Jansenist that he was, was not anything like sufficient protection against the intrigue of the Jesuits, and although unaware of it, he became their instrument. He arrived one day to say that in order to avoid falling into the frightful sin of suicide, it was essential that Julian take all possible measures to obtain clemency. Now, since the clergy had a great deal of influence in the Ministry of Justice in Paris, an easy means offered itself. He must undergo a sensational conversation, conversion. A sensational conversion, repeated Julian. Ah, I have caught you at it too, Father, playing the missionary role. Your, your youth, the Jansenist replied gravely, the interesting face with which Providence has endowed you, the very motive of your crime, will, which remains inexplicable, the heroic deeds that Mademoiselle de la Mole has lavished on the cause, everything in short, up to the astounding friendship shown you by the victim, is everything Everything has combined to make you the hero of all the young ladies of Bezicon. They have become oblivious to all else, even politics, for your sake. Your conversion would resound in their hearts and make a profound impression. You could be the, of the greatest service to religion, and as for me... Should I hesitate for the frivolous reason that the Jesuits would take the same steps on an, a like occasion? If that was so, even in this particular case which has escaped their rapacity, they would still be doing harm. Let it not be so. The tears shed at your conversion would cancel out, cancel out the corrosive effect of ten editions of Voltaire's blasphemous works. And what would I have left, replied Julian coldly, when I despise myself? I have been ambitious. I do not want blame myself for that, for at that time I was acting according to the customs of the age, and now I live from day to day, but glancing at the prospect ahead I would make myself very unhappy indeed if I slid into such a piece of cowardice. The other incident affecting Julian is in a very different way, originated with Madame de Renal. I have no idea what scheming friend had succeeded in persuading this naive and timid soul that it was her duty to leave for St. Cloud or to go and throw herself at the knees of King Charles X. She had made the sacrifice of parting from Julian, and, after an effort like that, the distastefulness of making a spectacle of herself, which at any other time would have seemed worse than death, was nothing in her eyes. I will go to the king and openly avow that you are my lover. The life of a man and of a man like Julian must override all other considerations, I will say that it was through jealousy that you made an attempt on my life. There are hundreds of examples of young men redeemed in such cases by the humanity of a jury or of the king. 
I will stop seeing you. I will have my prison closed to you, cried Julian, and certainly the next day I will kill myself in despair if you don't swear not to do anything to make a public spectacle of us both. This notion of going to Paris isn't yours. Tell me the name of the scheming female who suggested it to you. Let's be happy in the handful of days left in this short life. Let's conceal our existence. My crime is only too plain. Mademoiselle de la Mole has all the influence there is to be had in Paris. Be assured that she will do all that is humanly possible. Here in the provinces I have all the rich and influential people against me. What you would do would only further aggravate those rich and above all mediocre kind of men for whom life is such an easy matter. Don't let's give them anything to laugh at. Those Mazons and Valinods and thousands of others worthier than them. The foul air of the cell was becoming intolerable to Julian. Fortunately, on the day it was announced to him that he must die, a pleasant sunshine was cheering all the natural world, and Julian was in courageous mood. Walking in the open air was a delicious sensation for him, as as is treading on the earth again for the sailor who has been long at sea. Forward, then, everything's all right, he said to himself. I don't lack courage at all. Never had that head been so poetic as at the moment it was to fall. The sweetest hours had had he had known in the woods at Virgin long ago came crowding into his thoughts with wonderful intensity. Everything passed off simply, appropriately, and with no affectation on his part. Two days before he had said to Fouque, As to what I will feel, I can't answer. This cell, being so sordid, so damp, gives me feverish moments when I don't know myself. But as to fear, no, no one will see this face blench. He had arranged in advance that on the morning of the last day, Fouque should carry off both Matilda and Madame de Renal. Take them both in the same carriage, he said. Make sure the post horses keep up a gallop. They will fall into one another's arms, or they will show mortal hatred. In either case, the poor woman will be distracted a little from their terrible sorrow. Julian had exacted a vow from Madame de Renal, and she would live to look after Matilda's son. Who knows, perhaps we still have some sensation after our death, he had said one day to Fouque. I would rather like to repose, since repose is the word, in the little cave on the great mountain that looms over Verrier's. Many is the time, as I have told you, that retreating into that cavern at night, my gaze plunging far over the richest provinces of France, ambition has flamed in my heart. That was my passion then. Anyway, that cave is dear to me, and nobody could disagree that it is a place so as to fill a philosophic soul with envy. Very well, these good congregationists at Bersacon will do anything for cash. If you knew how to handle it, they would sell you my mortal remains. Fook succeeded in this bad but in this sad bargain. He was spending the night alone in his room next to the corpse of his friend when, to his great surprise, he saw Matilda come in. Only a few hours earlier he had left her ten leagues from Bezicon. Her expression and her eyes were wild. I want to see him, she said. Fook had the resolution neither to speak nor to rise. He pointed with his finger at a large blue cloak in the floorboards. In that was wrapped what remained of Julian. She threw herself on her knees. The memory of Boniface de la Mole and Marguerite de Norvue inspired her, no doubt, with superhuman resolve. Her trembling hands opened the cloak. Fouque turned away his eyes. He heard Matilda walking about rapidly in the room. She lit a large number of candles. When Fouque summoned up the strength to look at her, 
She had placed Julian's head on a little marble table in front of her and was kissing its brow. Matilda followed her lover to the tomb he had chosen. A large band of priests escorted the bier, and unknown to all, alone in her veiled carriage, she carried on her knees the head of the man she had so dearly loved, coming in this way almost to the summit of one of the highest mountains in the Jura, in the depths of the night, and in that little cave, now magnificently lit up in innumerable tapers, twenty priests celebrated the service for the dead. All the inhabitants of the little mountain villages that the convoy had crossed followed it, attracted by the singularity of this strange rite. Matilda appeared in the midst of them, in long mourning robes, and at the end of the service had many thousand five-franc pieces scattered in the crowd. Left alone with Fouque, she insisted on burying her lover's head with her own hands. Fuchs narrowly avoided losing his mind with grief. By Matilda's agency, this wild cavern was decorated with marble carvings sculpted in Italy at great expense. Madame de Renal was faithful to her promise. In no way did she seek to take her own life, but three days after Julian, she died, her children in her arms. The End To The Happy Few There we go, that's the end. The End To The Happy Few. I've never seen an extra bit written after the words the end and there's a footnote on the words the end and I'm going to flick to that now and read it Stendhal's note the drawback of the reign of public opinion which in other aspects procures liberty is that it mixes itself up in things with which it has nothing to do for example private life Hence the melancholy in America and in England. To avoid impinging on private life, the author has invented a small town, Verrieres, and, when he had need of a bishop, a jury, and as his course, he cited them all in Bezicon, where he has never been. Okay. Cool. That's the end of the book. Everyone's dead. Why did Madame de Renal die? What happened there? And why did she do it with her children in her arms? That is weird. Have your say over on the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.